So you create more competition for lower wage work. You're pushing people to compete against each other because they need to make ends meet because debt requires that of people. So it's a way for them to inadvertently push their costs down while maximizing profits and also at the meantime, providing less and less in terms of benefits. I, I think it's a way to keep people beholden to cheap labor and to accept the conditions for what they're given because they don't have any other opportunity anywhere else. Um, I think it it distracts people from looking at the top and saying, well, what the fuck, I'm getting screwed by people above me, and rather focuses the attention on the other worker because they're the competition, they're the enemy. I got to keep my focus on being better than that person because that's what's going to get me my job, which is going to pay me $2 an hour more. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's student debt horror story number two, with Sean McCoy. Sean is a Virginia-based filmmaker who, outside his professional career, donates his skills and footage to progressive candidates and nonprofits. As a teenager, he was a professional actor who applied to theater programs at 11 different universities. He settled on Boston University, which is a private institution that offered to cover 50% of his costs through various grants and scholarships. Sean left school with nearly $150,000 in student debt. Now it's five years later and he's paid more than required each month, which has reduced it to around $120,000. At this rate, he will have fully paid off his loans around the year 2042. That's not a joke. Sean describes in detail how debt is a lever of power and how that in turn is a tool used by the rich to enslave their workers. This despite the obvious fact that even though chained down by debt, these workers create well more in value for the economy, for society, for these rich people, than the amount they owe in debt. In the case of my previous student debt horror story, Dalton is a high school teacher who spread that education to hundreds of students in his seven years of teaching experience. Like all teachers, Dalton has created many times more in value for society than the $47,000 society has chosen to burden him with. Even if our individual tax dollars really were needed to pay for the education of others, not burdening teachers with student debt would obviously be a good investment. How much more would they benefit society if they were let loose by never burdening them with student debt to begin with. Student debt 
is nothing more than needless future punishment for daring to aspire above your station. In part two, Sean responds to some of the common criticisms of those who argue against canceling student debt, arguments almost entirely based on the false assumption that our individual tax dollars are required to pay for the education and debt of others. To learn more about Sean and his work, you can visit his website at seancmccoy.com. And now, on to our conversation. Enjoy. Um, yeah, where do you live? Uh, I'm based in Arlington, right outside of uh, Washington, D.C. Oh. So that was a real coincidence that when we first talked that you were doing something with Alexandra. Yeah, yeah, I'm not Philadelphia-based at all, but um, I volunteer video production for progressive and leftist campaigns. And so um, a couple of weeks before, I had reached out to Alexandra and asked her if she needed any sort of needs for video. And yeah, we, uh, we linked up and we were actually slated to shoot a student debt video uh, that weekend that that viral tweet went out. Um, so that was quite a coincidence. Okay. So, so I contacted you, it was obviously a student tweet, something or other. So that Mm -hmm. was, I contacted you right after your tweet went viral. Is that what happened? Yeah, I believe so. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't register that. Okay. Um, okay. So Sean, thanks a lot for doing this. Um, Mm -hmm. why don't you, why don't you, uh, introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about, your your film uh, filmmaking and you know what you do and uh, I'll, I know that Ilhan shared your video and that you've been working with Alexandra so if you could you know introduce yourself and kind of touch on that stuff sure yeah so my name is uh, Sean McCoy I'm a filmmaker based in Washington D.C. Uh, and I m- my work kind of spans a lot of different uh, verticals but. I produce a lot of documentary and I work pretty regularly with progressive campaigns uh, for which work I donate to try to break the barrier between access with media and uh, telling stories that are important for communities. I also, as part of that work, like to support small businesses, nonprofits, uh, that kind of thing. So definitely more social impact oriented, uh, community oriented. And I like to work with smaller entities rather. I, like, I don't think I've ever done like a, a thing for a big corporate. And that's just definitely not my interest at all. But uh, yeah, uh, that's sort of my background. I didn't really plan to be a filmmaker. It kind of happened by accident. Um, I was in New York when I graduated from college and I was just poor. I didn't have money and I needed to think of ways to diversify my skill set so that I could be not only more marketable in the job place, but to like have ways of making money that were reliable and that I could sustain. So I taught myself filmmaking through the route that I think a lot of people take nowadays, which is just like a trial and, and error and failure and like humble, humbling yourself from that. And then of course, YouTube, uh, the golden age of, of learning whatever you can from whatever's provided for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my background. And, uh, I've, the working with the progressive campaign thing is, 
all of this is relatively new. Like I started doing this stuff, I guess, about three and a half, four years ago. But the working with campaign part is really starting to bud in the last year and a half, two years or so. And so, Il- so can you talk a little bit about uh, Ilhan sharing your video? Yeah, so it's sort of coincidental, but I, I had attended, uh, uh, this was back in the, the Trump days of whatever, every, you know, any, every day there is some sort of, is this the last day on earth type feeling. And uh, it was the time when I believe we had just murdered that general in Iran. Um, and he, there was like high, you know, fear of, of war with Iran. So there was a protest outside the Capitol that I had just happened to attend. And uh, Ilhan was there uh, and filmed that. And then after I, you know, after the protest, just sent her team the footage that I had put together and said, I have this if you guys, you know, need it for anything. And so she, uh, she shared it. And, and yeah, I'm sorry, around when was when was that? When did you film that? So that was right before COVID. That was in January, I believe of, of 2020. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what you do, uh, you know. To what do you do to survive? How do you make you know? How do you make money? Yeah, it's um, it's diversified. So I I work full time. I'm a video production uh, video producer for a contractor here in DC, and then I also have my small business. Um, so I use my full time work to fund projects that I. want to donate to progressives and then any sort of extra money that I need to offset student loans or payments or make investments on equipment, I sort of outsource to some of the smaller business work and do so at a a rate that I think is pretty below the market. uh, Because for me, this business isn't really profit motivated. It's more, I love doing this. And uh, I'm thinking about okay. Well, I you know I I only need this much, so I don't need to. I don't have all of these other expenses that I need to push my profit margins or anything like that. Like just trying to be realistic about bringing quality media to smaller businesses, smaller communities, stuff like that. Okay. So that's how I survive. It's a lot of. It's more stable now than it used to be because uh, I work full time. But yeah, it's it's. It, it was a struggle before. Um, okay, so let's go back to the beginning. So you were deciding to go to college mm-hmm. or considering going to college, considering what majors you wanted to take. Can you, can you describe kind of that, that path, that decision process, and obviously of paying for it as possible, part of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I came from a a middle-class family background. My mom was a single mom at the point of time when I was applying to schools, and I had grown up as an actor. That's what I was doing here in D.C. as a child. I was working professionally in D.C. theater scene. And so for me, you know, as somebody who was, like, okay at grades and was, like, a terrible test taker, acting was a ticket for me to get into college and to do so at a competitive level. So when it came to applying for schools, that was the avenue that I was looking at. And I, in, in the acting world, 
or at least in the theater school world, there's like a hierarchy of you go to this school, at least this is how it's marketed to people, right? Like you, you, if you go to this school, then you'll end up with, you know, steady work and steady connections and steady this, that, and the other. And so a lot of, I think, actors who are playing that kind of game will apply to a ton of schools. So I think I ended up applying to about 11 schools, a couple in-state, and most of them private out-of-state, random sort of colleges that had really well-defined, really thorough acting theater programs. And after sort of visiting a couple campuses for me and getting the feel for the, A, the financial aid that I was given, because it all kind of broke down in the end to being about the same, uh, it was, okay, do I pick Boston University, which is where I ended up going, or University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And of course, you know, Boston University is not a cheap uh, institution. It's also not a public institution. But I was offered about, I guess, 50% of my tuition through a grant and a couple merit scholarships or talent scholarships, what they called them uh, at the time. And so when I broke down the cost of like tuition versus uh, what I would end up paying in my head, it was sort of like, okay, this is normal. Like it feels normal. It feels like every student, every, uh, kid that I talked to was kind of in the same boat. So it was sort of like, is this, how much different is this going to be for me if I go in state and get a program that's not as well defined versus going to this other institution where I'm getting half off and I'm still going to be in debt either way. Um, so that was kind of my thought process. And I was 18 at the time. Uh, so a sense of math, sense of interest rates, sense of any sort of financial literacy, of course, is not really taught in school. Uh, and it's not really, nobody's really there to like say, hey, you know, you you're going to be making this much money uh, and, you know, your interest rates are going to actually mean that your payments month to month are this much rather than, you know, what, if you break down the math, seems like a reasonable thing to pay. Reasonable within question, uh, quotation marks, right? But yeah, that, that was the process for me. Really kind of just a, uh, it seems like no matter what you picked, you were kind of screwed either way. Okay, so what would you what would you say now to that person who said, "Oh, this is normal"? I mean, it still feels normal, right? Like I I know people. I mean, some of my peers who stayed in state and studied engineering, those are the people that like pay has have paid off their debt that I know of, at least in my circle. The people who like stayed in state, studied engineering, work at some six figure job, like those are the people that. I know have little debt or have paid off their debt at my age, at least. I, I think it's really hard to tell. It's really hard to say, I, you know, part of my success, I think is because I have this degree, despite the fact that it's in acting, like it feels like part of the requirement of having a degree is reinforced by the sort of job market. If what I, 
have gotten any of my jobs if I didn't have that little thing on my resume that said I graduated in 2017? I don't know. It, is my skill set useful for what I'm doing? It is in terms of storytelling, but like if you look at like it, if you look at that on paper, most people wouldn't would be like, oh, well, he went to school for acting. How how does that help him film things? I mean, you know, but like those skills, I guess, can translate in anything that you do. That's communication oriented, at least. So it's hard to tell what what I would say to myself now. Um, I think there's definitely better options for just not getting screwed by debt. And perhaps I maybe should have taken some time before uh, to go. But also, like, in school, I left, uh, I, I met really great friends, uh, people that have been important in my life. I've met my girlfriend, who I'm still with. So those paths definitely wouldn't have happened. So I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say, to say I, I, if I could change the financial cost of that and, and tell myself, break down the cost a little bit more. I think, you know, <laughs> maybe my choices would have been different. Okay, so so the credential itself, regardless what it's in, is helpful. But it feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean that that makes sense. It, it pretending that we still, you know, it, it's having that debt is necessary. Having the high cost is necessary. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know that that is just normal, like you said. Would you go back and do it differently? knowing you'd still have to have debt, but knowing that, you know, you took acting, which is not a totally applicable to what you're, to what you're doing now, would you have, if you had the chance to do it again, knowing that you would still have to be in debt, would you do it differently? Hmm. Uh, I mean, if I knew uh, yeah, if I had the knowledge now, I would probably it would be really hard to to make the same sort of financial choices. Um, I definitely get the emotional choices of wanting to go to school to have the same path, the same place with the same thing. But I think at least in terms of managing finances throughout throughout school, I think maybe there could have been better ways to cut down on that debt if I had thought about. I mean, this is the thing about capitalism, right? Like it forces you to play the game. Otherwise you have to, you get grinded, you know? So if there are ways for me to invest in things when I was making money that could have grown throughout the time I was in school, then maybe I would have been in a better place to, to, to pay off a, a larger chunk of that debt at the time. But, you know, again, there's nothing there to, to really help you uh, understand what is waiting for you around the corner. So I, I, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question. For me, it's a bit of a difficult one because there's a lot of, there's a lot of things in my life that I think are beneficial to me from what I got regardless of the debt. And like the other thing I, I said when all of, this thing ex- all of these things exploded is like definitely not a poster child case for student debt. I do think eventually I will get over it um, I'll be able to pay it off, I think, eventually, <laughs> I, right? But I don't think that I'm going to be in a, as nearly as screwed as other people who come from poor backgrounds who just want to improve their station in life and walk out with fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in debt 
you know, in a job that pays him 40 grand a year, like that, I, I, that's like, you can't really win in that situation. I, I do think that eventually I'll be able to get over this. And so for me, it's sort of like, if this path, if I know this path has worked for me, even though it's caused me a lot of trauma, a lot of, uh, like insanity, <laughs> I, at least I, I have a feeling at least I'll make it through it. So that's sort of where I'm grappling with that, if, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Okay, so while you were in college, how did you manage, you know, I guess, did, were you conscious of wanting to minimize your costs and what did you do about that? Like such as, you know, what you chose to, to, to eat, whether you bought, you know, prepared your own food or ate out all the time or, or did you work during school or did you live off campus? Like what did you do during college if that was part of your awareness? Yeah, it was definitely part of my awareness. It was very challenging to do any of that in the program that I was in. So I went to a conservatory style program, which basically means you sell your whole soul to the program and you <laughs> are in intense training for about 80 hours a week, plus then the homework on the side. So a lot of times in school, I was going to class at 7.30 and then not getting home until 11 or, or in, you know, especially my first year, like 1 a.m. 7.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. With like a couple breaks, maybe an hour here to grab lunch. So working during that time wasn't really feasible and was heavily dissuaded from our, our like teachers were like, okay, good luck, but like, don't, you're here for school. So focus on school. Um, I worked my summers. I applied during the, uh, during the spring, whatever. And I worked these really grueling summers and the work was okay, but it definitely not, you know, wasn't getting paid what I needed to be paid to survive. I worked as a teacher, uh, as a counselor, and those were kind of, when I was applying, those were kind of the jobs that I was getting, despite the fact that I was in, you know, a school, I still didn't have that checkbox that said I, I had a degree or anything like that. And that's kind of what everybody told me. It's just like, just wait till you get your degree, and then we can pay you more. It's like, well, why? If I'm providing the same skill set now, why do I need to wait? Um, my senior year, I was my schedule kind of loosened up, and I had more time to actually work. So I was holding a couple jobs at that point. I was I, I was working as a uh, I don't know what you call them a concierge at this bar, <laughs> and I was also taking the actor headshots and headshots on the side. Uh, and as a concierge, I think I was making like eight dollars and fifty cents an hour. Nice. And uh, the headshots I was charging, I I could make a little bit more than that. Um, I think I was doing like fifty dollars per headshot. And then I started working in shows uh, after that and, and then got unionized in the actor's union. But, working, uh, meaning, and acting in shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, yeah. And when you're working as an actor, like in theater, you know, that money is, if you're unionized at least, is pretty decent. Uh, you, you know, for the amount of, I mean, yeah, during rehearsals, you, you know, you are working eight hours, but once your show opens up, you know, you've got a lot, can swing a job in the morning and stuff like that. And then you get your, you know, your regular pay that you're getting cut from that show. So, you know, you can make 
some money if you're working regularly, but it's, it's competition. Um, so, and of course the work is uncertain, but yeah, that's what I was doing throughout school. And so it, it, for me, it was like, I, I, I definitely was uh, conservative fiscally in terms of my uh, pay and what I was doing. I never spent money basically on anything. And I think I graduated, when I graduated with school, I had about ten dollars or $12,000 in savings. Uh, and I haven't spent that savings really at all. I've just tried to keep saving and keep investing in small ethical things that I think will help me grow to eventually surmount my debt. Uh, and that's sort of been the strategy since I've graduated. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So can you describe your current condition, your current state, like, uh, you know, how much you have, how much you've paid off, uh, how much you started with, what's your interest rate? I assume, you know, did you consolidate at some point or whatever? Mm -hmm. Like I, you're, you're my second student at horror story. Mm -hmm. So in the previous one, he only had like around 40, 46, I think is what his, what he started with. And, um, it's like, it's kind of weird. It's like that, that what it is a horror story. Mm. Yours is a lot more, which is even more of a horror story. And <laughs> I'm, I'm hopefully going to be talking with, uh, uh, someone who has around $200,000 mm. with a $55,000 salary job. Mm. So, you know, it keeps on going, it, it keeps on getting bigger and bigger, but mm -hmm. each within itself is still a horror story. Um, so what, what my previous guest was saying was, like he kept on getting more loans, meaning, you know, whatever, I guess you get a new loan each year or whatever, mm -hmm. however it works. But each time you get a loan, it has a new interest rate because it's based, it's a mark, you know, it's based on the market. Yeah. So yeah. even if you have a steady, even if you have a, a, a locked, whatever you call it, a locked rate that every new loan has a different rate. So mm -hmm. you have all of these different loans at different rates at the end, and then you consolidate them to, I guess, the current market rate or whatever it is. So can you describe your current condition mm. and kind of give the basics of, you know, your loan of where it started and where it is now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started out with like five different loans um, <clears throat> and I had two loans that equaled about forty-two, $43,000 mm. uh, from Sally May and one of those interest rates on that, on one of those loans was 10.7%. And, oh wow! Yeah, an, holy cow! <laughs> yeah, another was like nine point eight, and it, yeah, insane man. And uh, then I had another loan, a larger loan, from my local credit union, which I use for banking, and that was about eighty thousand uh, dollars, eighty-one, I think, thousand dollars, and the interest rate. I believe was 6.4% on that. And then I had a government loan of about 27,000. And the, you know, I think the interest rate on that was like 4.3%, something more manageable. Well, again, comparatively, right? So all in all was close to about a hundred and uh, close to about $150,000 in student loan debt. And, yeah, that was half off tuition, right? So, you know, had I not qualified or gotten any of the grants going to that school, making that choice would have cost me $300,000 for one degree. 
Yeah. So I assume a bachelor's, right? Yeah, bachelor's. Um, a bachelor of arts, mind you, bachelor of fine arts. Yeah, and it's crazy. I mean, like, I won't throw shade at my school, but I guess I should because, like, you know, they're definitely their policy for handing out scholarships was was income based, right? But you also know, at least from parts of my program, that some of the parents who were wealthier, who could then become donors for the department, some of their kids, you know, get full rides. So it's like, what, where is the, uh, where's the logic in that? If this is income, whatever based, but yeah, so graduated with about $150,000, I guess $147,000 in debt. And, um, I, I, I have to break them down individually. I've now consolidated. I have about, th- I have three loans that I pay now. Um, and uh, I consolidated the Sally May awful interest rate loans back in 2019. And uh, that interest rate is now, I think, 3%. Oh, much better. Mm, much Holy better. Cow. Yeah. And how much is uh, roughly how much is that one? That one's about so it was about 42,000, 41,000, I think. And now I think I've paid down. I think I'm in the like 38, 39, 37, but it's been I've been paying that one off for 3 3 years now and uh, you know, my monthly payments $300, so you do the math, 36 a year times 4, I've put $12,000 down towards that loan and I've only paid off, you know, I don't know, 3 or 4,000. Um <sighs> So yeah, there's there. That's one loan. My other loan from my credit union, which has actually been the more demoralizing one, uh, even though the interest is real pretty low. I consolidated that one with Common Bond in uh, I think 2020, the year the the year when the Fed dropped all the interest rates was when I was like, okay, time to refinance. Um, oh, that's smart that you're paying attention. Okay. Yeah. I was like, okay, time to go. So I consolidated that one. Um, and my credit score has gotten progressively better since I, I now like manage different credit cards for my business. And like, I'm very good at staying on top of payments and managing credit and all of that. I've become like pretty good at finance because I've had to, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so I was able to, I think, get my interest rate down on that other loan to about 4% from 6.4% to about 4%, um, when I refinanced and now that one that, so when I, when I consolidated my loan, the interest that was still outstanding on that loan got applied to a print, got applied to the new principal. So I was, I had taken that one down from 81 to 71 or something like that. And maybe there was still remaining interest on the loan that I was still paying, but I'm back at 81 or I was back at 81 when I consolidated. And I think I'm down to 79, about 79 thousand dollars on that one so that's i've been paying that one for i don't know i've graduated for five years so five years and i'm about two thousand dollars off the original uh principal balance on that loan so that one how much each month was roughly for that 
Um, I pay more than I'm supposed to now. I think my payment for that loan is about $500 a month, and I think I'm paying $575. So $575 times five years, and you're only $2,000 down? Yeah. $575 times 12 times five, roughly. Mm-hmm. That's how much you've paid, but you're only down the principal $2,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that also accounts for the new, for me reconsolidating an interest being added back on in 2020. So there was like a little bit of a reset there. But yeah, basically, you know, I'm, I've paid, I'm down two grand from the original balance. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, uh, that's my biggest loan. And then my government loan, obviously, I've been taking advantage of no payments. And I've been before mm-hmm. I was not, I was, uh, my income just didn't qualify for a payment. Um, so I, I wasn't making payments, but since the pandemic, I've just been like, all right, let's try to whittle this down. So I think I was 27, the start of the pandemic. And I think I'm down to like 22 on that one. Okay. Uh, actually during the pandemic, so mm-hmm. you didn't have to make payments on that one of three loans, right? Well, I didn't qualify to make payments on it before. I, I wasn't making enough money. I was on an income-driven repayment plan. And every year I submitted my – I had to refile my repayment plan. And they qual- they deemed me as not making enough money to have to make payments. So I I hadn't – I wasn't required to make payments on my government loan for the first three years. And since the pandemic, when they lifted – interest and they've chilled on on requiring payments and all that uh i've been paying steadily so okay so but but that loan was still waiting around for you they weren't you you had to make the payments just not now yeah just not now yep yeah okay uh your sally may loan sally may isn't sally may a government entity uh i don't know if they're government I, I feel like they're similar to like what Fannie Mae was to the government. They're like government private. Um, they are definitely making money. And I think that they're secured by the government. But I don't think that they operate as a non-government uh, entity. Hmm. Like okay. um, what's it called? Not Navient. Like they're I think similar – Okay. All right. I, I assume that that was a government entity. And also I do know that – more than 90% of all student loans are owned by the government, which is kind of what I was, mm. you know. Um, one thing you made me think of is like, you know, you're not using your degree. Uh, you know, you, you, you benefit from having this from the, from the, uh, what do you call it? What's the term? The, uh, I forget what, there's a term that, that I said before. Like you have the fact that you oh, have the a credential. Degree. Thank you. Credential. You have a credential. So that's beneficial, even though the the particular what you you know what it's in is not necessarily totally applicable. But it's like, you know, I I have a I have a degree that I'm not using either. Like I I got a, a master's in, <laughs> I got a master's in elementary education, and I mm. kind of wish that I'd realized that I really wasn't happy in the classroom. You know, I re- re- wish I realized that before I got the master's. But it's like you know, you only have one shot. Mm. You can't go back. You can't get double student debt, you know? So it's like just the idea of you have to be perfect. And if, if you're not in a great, if you're not in a great state or, or maybe you, you just simply don't know well enough at the time that it's like, you only have one shot. Mm. 
because of student debt, substantially because of student debt. I don't know. Um, okay, so I'm going to switch gears to um, I've seen you, you know, obviously you've, you've tweeted about Pres- President Biden not canceling student debt. And I want to can you can me tell your can you tell me your thoughts regarding that? Yeah, I mean, personally, I think it extends beyond just canceling student debt. I don't quite understand the economics of saying you want to support, you want to help Americans recover, you want to help the youth, you want to help the next generation, you want to grow our GDP. You know, every month I'm throwing, let's say, a third of my income out the door. I'm throwing it into a void that nobody gets it doesn't benefit the economy at all it doesn't benefit local restaurants doesn't benefit local businesses doesn't that's a loss of tax dollars it's going to a private entity uh to their wallets probably for share buybacks or you know to invest in some other awful thing um if you have you know, 43 or 44 million people in the country who are carrying this kind of void every single month. I don't get the, I don't understand the benefit of withholding that from people, you know, putting on the, the sort of pro capitalist argument of, well, we want, you know, it's all about consumers and and spending and money and have, you know, people buying all these things that we're mass producing uh, but if you rob people of their ability to focus outside of just the bare essentials, uh, you're robbing them of investing in houses. Uh, you're robbing them of investing in buying commodities. You're holding back the economy. And th- I think that's not the largest argument for canceling student debt. But I'm trying to put my head into the like neoliberal thought mindset of like – the same kind of Reaganomic rhetoric they throw at us. Like to me, it's just like, doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I really fail to understand the long-term thought of, of how this is a smart thing to do for anybody, even for the people who are benefiting it in the short term. I really fail to see how this, anybody thinks this is a good idea and that this is totally sustainable. But I also think that like how many people never pursue higher education or pi- uh, higher skills or or education in general because they believe that the cost is ridiculous is unobtainable if you're coming from a low income community are you really entertaining the idea of going into a degree to maybe make 40 50,000 dollars a year and have like be back holding debt for half your life so if we want to tout innovation if we want to tout that we're a country that allows opportunity, then why would we do this to people who are just trying to better their station? To me, it extends beyond canceling student debt. Why don't we make institutions for education free? Like That, to me, seems like the most sustainable way to get and empower our generation, to empower young people, to empower people who want to change their career and diversify their skill set. You know, That only makes us better. It only makes us stronger. I don't, I just don't get it. I get, I think for me, it's just like small group of people want to keep making money. And that just, 
guides all our decision making. Uh, so it, it, it drives me crazy to think, you know, uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, you, I mean, you said that you can't see the benefit. Right. You can't see the benefit in not canceling student debt and, and, and more and more than just that. But clearly, someone is choosing for this very passionately. Right. So right. what is the underlying thing? And you kind of you kind of at least partially addressed it of someone wants to just keep getting richer, you know, for or however you worded it. So what is the underlying reason of why they're doing this? Because when they say, you know, we want to benefit all, is do they really mean that basically? Mm. I mean, I think I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on um, and I guess my more cynical ver- version of the world, uh, vision of the country, I guess I'll say, is that I think debt is a leverage of power. And so- No, you don't <laughs> say. Go on. Well, I, yeah, of course. I mean, debt is a leverage of power, right? So you have people who are required to have all of these monthly payments that prevents them from starting small businesses, which keeps competition out of the marketplace. It prevents them from pursuing independent choices that make them the sort of corporate class needs a constant set of workers. And they're always trying to find ways to push the cost of those workers down. So you create more competition for lower wage work. You're pushing people to compete against each other because they need to make ends meet because debt requires that of people. So it's a way for them to inadvertently push their costs down while maximizing profits and also at the meantime, providing less and less in terms of benefits. I I think it's a way to keep people beholden to cheap labor and to accept the conditions for what they're given because they don't have any other opportunity anywhere else. Um, I think it, it distracts people from looking at the top and saying, well, what the I'm getting screwed by people above me and rather focuses the attention on the other worker because they're the competition. They're the enemy. I got to keep my focus on being better than that person because that's what's going to get me my job, which is going to pay me $2 an hour more, you know, like that, which is genuinely, which is genuinely what's best for you. It is genuinely best for you to compete against, you know, your whatever, you know, I have to beat this person. I'll I'll take $2 an hour less. Please Mm. hire me instead. Mm That is genuinely what's best for you. Mm-hmm. So it, it, but only in this artificially created scenario, only in this mm-hmm. artificially created environment is that genuinely. But the, but we assume that that artificial environment is natural, mm. which is why we, which is why we go against you know the immigrant is stealing my job mm. because the environment makes it such that that's possible. But the, the but we what we don't understand is that that environment doesn't have to be that way, mm. and that's what all the false economics. That's what all the false economics illuminates that the environment mm. doesn't have to be that way to begin with. Sorry, I kind of derailed you, but no, no, but it's, totally. It's it's focusing on our peers and on on those below us is genuinely what's best for us. Mm, yeah, I mean, definitely that it's artificial, right? Like this is being manufactured and it's intentional. You see the same sort of it's 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 crazy, right? Like Americans are fed this kind of bullshit narrative all the time. It's like inundated to people constantly. And you see this on the news, on the radio. Like, for example, great example of this is is inflation, right? What's being what is the thing that is 
that is driving inflation right now. You'll hear two things on the media. One, oil, and then you'll hear something called the wage price spiral, right? Where they look (laughs) at poor people and they say, it's poor people, poor workers demanding $2 more an hour. That's what's driving inflation. Not the fact that that like Tyson Food, for example, sees an opportunity to hike their beef prices up, what, 50% just because they can, or oil just because there's demand to increase their price because they want to offset losses that they had in the pandemic and return those back to shareholders. Like We're failing to see the economics of, of this. Instead, people hear the narrative of it's poor people. It's those, it's those Amazon workers that are demanding a union. Those people are what are, is driving is driving inflation. It's like, no, bro, that's not, that's, that is, that, that is not the pricing power here. It is people, it is corporations unwilling to compromise on exponential profit margins that they have promised shareholders year over year. That is a completely non negotiable growth. And then finding ways to cut the corner everywhere else. And that, it, that's the bottom line. At least that's what I've observed. And like I said, I'm not an ex- economist. I don't, you know, I haven't studied this, but I, I follow the data and I follow the narratives that are being pushed out on mainstream media, really. And this is the conclusion that I've come to. It's like ridiculous, you know, and it all, it, it's, it's the same kind of shit that we're given with student debt, uh, different language, but, but same shit, you know? I think number one, I think your tinfoil hat is not a tinfoil hat. <laughs> it is what is what those in power want to be called a tinfoil hat. Mm. Um, there's a really, I would actually recommend an article to you, and it's about Larry Summers. It was a New York Times article about Larry Summers. Mm. Uh, I'll I'll send you the link. I'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, you you, I mean, you get it. You you know, maybe you don't know the intricacies of of you know real economics or whatever, but you you your instinct is in the right place. In this in this Larry art, uh, Larry Summers article, it talks about how how economists such as him say, you know, what's most important is that we lower prices for people, mm. right? So, you know, Walmart can you know guarantees low low prices, and that's what's important. That's what's important, and you know, it, it, but don't. But so, okay, so focus on the the prices being lowered. Mm. Don't focus on the degraded worker conditions, the lowered worker rights, our communities being decimated, jobs being taken overseas, pollution, price gouging. Don't look mm-hmm. at those things. You know, disease because of whatever pollution or whatever it is, climate change. Don't look at these things. Lowered prices. That's the end goal. That's the shiny ball. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the shiny ball in in the positive direction of the goal is lowered prices, but don't look at any of the non uh, don't look at any of the real world suffering that's out there because lowered prices is the goal. Lowered wages, mm. lowered wages. You know, obviously, if, if price is lowered, but my wages are lowered, who cares? It's the same damn price, mm. right? Relatively speaking, overall. And then on the opposite side, it's instead of saying prices are going to go up, they say inflation. Because it's the same, it's the opposite. It's the inverse of what I just said. Mm. It's, it's if you dare try and 
demand better wages, demand better worker rights, demand a livable climate, which requires lowered use of fossil fuels, which the rich depend on to keep their power. If you demand uh, stop outsourcing and make our communities better and stop price gouging and all these things, inflation. Mm. So that's the shiny ball in the negative sense that's thrown in your face Mm. of any demands for average people is going to cause inflation because it's the inverse of we will lower your prices and that's what's most important. It's it's ignore all of the non-money things by just focusing on the price of something. But if your wage goes down, do you really care that the price has gone down? If you're if you're if you're don't have a livable climate, does it really matter that mm. prices are going down? If if you're suffering in order to jack those prices up, do you really you know, like uh, an economist uh, I spoke to a long time ago, John Harvey, said something to the effect, I'm going to mangle this, but we have slaves, we had slaves in the cotton fields picking cotton. And by stopping slavery and having to invent machines to do this instead and, and get gas and fossil fuels in order to do that, the price of cotton went up a little bit. Mm. Is that worth the price of stopping the mass exploitation of those people? Why wouldn't mm. you let firms pay workers more money? Now, could that be inflationary? Yeah, it could, but I don't care. I mean, my story is always this, that the Emancipation Proclamation made cotton more expensive, but that wasn't the point. Mm. Just because you make something more expensive isn't a bad thing. That if we are talking about rewarding people fairly, then part of that is going to be inflationary. If we pay people more to sell hamburgers, to to make hamburgers, then yes, it is quite possible that hamburgers become more expensive. And so what? That's okay. Because, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be working. So, and I know why MMT people generally sort of shy away from from saying that it could possibly be inflationary. Uh, and, And I understand some of the arguments and don't disagree with them totally, but I also just don't care. Because if it turns out that by creating a jobs program, and full employment causes the wages of the poorest Americans to go up and therefore causes uh, those of us that are, are lucky enough to not be in that sector to have to pay more for getting our yard cut, to have to pay more for getting our hair cut. So what? That's okay. That's what a civilized society is about. Right. So it's it's not just the price of things. It's the world in which those prices exist. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of went off and uh, – so I'll, I'll stop there, but there, there's a Larry, I'll send you the Larry Summers article. Um, and actually, the final point is, if you demand higher wages, then yeah, they can just continue to raise prices, and mm. that will cause inflation. It will cause inflation because they'll just jack up their prices. But who allows them to do that? Mm. Government must be complicit. Mm-hmm. The government chooses to stand in, to stand on the side of companies, and to not stand on the side of workers. So government must be complicit. So I'll stop there. I completely went off. Go on. (laughs) No, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it, 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 I, 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 I'm blanking on this man's name. Uh, Apple economist from Milton Friedman. Is that his name? (laughs) I think that, yeah, that was Milton Friedman. Uh, isn't, I think from the seventies, isn't he famous for making making the the shift of thinking in at least 
companies, the largest companies in the world to, to stop focusing on quality and rather to focus on shareholder return. And like when I trace back the origins of this kind of shitty thinking, there's a lot of intersections, Reagan's one of them, but also like this sort of change in philosophy where it's like no matter what, at whatever cost, year over year, we have to continue to grow. That's how we get strong. And I think, like, at least I believe that's why we're in all of these shitty situations from our climate, ignoring facts, ignoring bubbles, ignoring all of the red flags, chasing a short-term pursuit of profit. It's because of this kind of thinking that we have promised, or not we, because I'm not a part of this, but like companies have promised Today's student debt horror story number two, with Sean McCoy. Sean is a Virginia-based filmmaker who, outside his professional career, donates his skills and footage to progressive candidates and nonprofits. As a teenager, 
He was a professional actor who applied to theater programs at 11 different universities. He settled on Boston University, which is a private institution that offered to cover 50% of his costs through various grants and scholarships. Sean left school with nearly $150,000 in student debt. Now it's five years later, and he's paid more than required each month, which has reduced it to around $120,000. At this rate, he will have fully paid off his loans around the year 2042. That's not a joke. Sean describes in detail how debt is a lever of power, and how that in turn is a tool used by the rich to enslave their workers. This despite the obvious fact that even though chained down by debt, these workers create well more in value for the economy, for society, for these rich people, than the amount they owe in debt. In the case of my previous student debt horror story, Dalton is a high school teacher who spread that education to hundreds of students in his seven years of teaching experience. Like all teachers, Dalton has created many times more in value for society than the $47,000 society has chosen to burden him with. Even if our individual tax dollars really were needed to pay for the education of others, not burdening teachers with student debt would obviously be a good investment. How much more would they benefit society if they were let loose by never burdening them with student debt to begin with? Student debt is nothing more than needless future punishment for daring to aspire above your station. In part two, Sean responds to some of the common criticisms of those who argue against canceling student debt, arguments almost entirely based on the false assumption that our individual tax dollars are required to pay for the education and debt of others. To learn more about Sean and his work, you can visit his website at seancmccoy.com. And now, on to our conversation. Enjoy.